Hey, uh, good morning uh, to all of you who are sitting in here. Uh, good morning to our uh, friends and family that are watching uh, at home. Uh, we look forward to the day uh, where we can all be back together in this room, uh, worshiping together. So uh, as you sit at home, uh, we are praying for you and uh, welcome to our worship service this morning. Um, as James said, if you still have some kids in here that aren't ready um, to hear some of the topics that we're going to talk about, I'm guessing that neither of us want me to be the one who addresses some of these things with your kids, okay? So if they're still in here, go ahead and make sure they get over there. Um, turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, that's where we're at this morning. And if James did not entice you enough to come uh, to the Thanksgiving celebration with turkey and mashed potatoes and all that sort of thing, um, I want to give you a heads up of what we're going to do that, um, that uh, Thanksgiving celebration. Um, James and Tony, they have been uh, in ministry for a really long time. Uh, and they have been serving specifically here at Riverview uh, for a really long time as well. And we um, are going to take the opportunity to ordain those men uh, into God's service. Obviously, they have already been doing ministry for a long time, um, and so it's way overdue. But we're just going to say, you know what? We appreciate the ministry that you've been doing here, and we are going to officially ordain them as ministers of the gospel uh, here at Riverview in our context. And so uh, we are looking forward to that. So if Turkey doesn't get it for you, go ahead and come for those guys to help celebrate them uh, as you are part of the, uh, the community and the flock that they've been able to minister to for over um, the 10 and 5 years that they've been here. So um, let's take a minute to pray, and then we're going to uh, dive into the still. We're in some pretty choppy waters, okay? So let's pray that God would do some work in us. Uh, Father, uh, this has been an interesting uh, two weeks for us diving into your word. Um, your word uh, never ceases to amaze us, and truly it never ceases to challenge us. Um, challenge us in our way of living, challenge us in our way of thinking, uh, our philosophy and our theology, uh, challenge uh, the practical areas of our life. And so this morning, um, we want to come to you under the context of your truth, um, apply to our life to bring us into conformity to who you've already made us to be in Christ. And so, Father, as we uh, open up your truths and we hear from your word, may you give us ears to hear it, but also a, a spirit to obey uh, your word in really difficult things. And so um, this morning is yours. I'm available to be used by you. Uh, and so speak through me and apply your truth to our hearts, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, we're still uh, talking about kingdom living in a sex-crazed world. Uh, and so we're going to be in a few different places this morning. Um, but this is, as I said, it's pr some pretty choppy waters. Um, but we're moving out of the realm of sex and sexuality necessarily, like I, focusing on that like we focused last week. But we're moving into this realm of marriage and how our sex and sexuality plays out in the realm of marriage this morning. And the goal for us is we're going to try to answer a couple different questions. Right? And the first one is, should a person get married or not? Right? Should, I, should I choose to get married or should I not be married? And if you get married, what do you do when the marriage starts rocking? Not in the, the physical way in the room that you hoped it would. Um, not in the fantastic ways. But what do you do when that marriage starts rocking in the house and it's, uh, there's pain and angst that shows up in the place where you used to have hope and you used to have dreams in. So should a person get married? And if you get married, what do you do when things start to kind of fall apart? And so what I want to do as we start to delve into that conversation is I want to set the context as we have for our entire conversation as we've been doing for the entire series, right? And the context is this. 
right? And then this is important that we're looking at the church. And we said that the church is God's design, that it's his masterpiece, that he created it. It's, and in his design, he had an intention for us. He had an intention to grow up his church from the inside out to mature us. But at the same time, he wanted us to impact the culture wherever that church is planted, right? And last week, what we said was the church is God's plan A. There is no plan B. And so as you look around at the church, as you look around at believers in our community, as you look around at believers around the world, we are his plan A to reach the world. <clears throat> and so it is extremely important that we don't just sit on our hands and our duff and do nothing. It's important that we grow up into maturity and that when we grow up, we see the, con- we see, we see the impact of our community and our community begins to grow and is impacted as well. There is no plan B. The church, the church is it. And I think it's also true that the church is supposed to be this little glimpse and a little sneak peek of eternity being lived out here on earth, right? That when you look at the context of heaven and the holiness and the reliability and the dependence on the Spirit and dependence on the Lord, that you should be able to see kingdom-minded people who are living that out now, although imperfectly trying to perfectly um, replicate what we've been called to in eternity, okay? So that is uh, the context. And And I think when people are to look at how believers serve one another, how believers interact with one another, how we do conflict with one another, how we fight with one another. We're going to fight, but when we, how we fight with one another and how we look and get after sex and sexuality, how we date and how we interact with marriages, that the world is supposed to be able to look in at the church and get a peek of what heaven will one day look like. Now, let me ask you a question, right? When the world looks behind the curtain of the church, is that what we're currently seeing? Is the world getting a true glimpse of what eternity is going to look like one day? What I want to do is I want to take the context uh, of our conversation and I want to move it over into the realm of human relationships with one another. Last week we were talking about sex and sexuality. Now we're moving that over into the context of our human relationships in the context of marriage. And the constant question that we have on the table for believers is this. Will God's people let God people lead them according to his design, not our opinion, but lead according to his design in every area of their lives, even in the most intimate aspects of their life, down into their dating world, down into their sex and sexuality, down into their marriage relationships? Will God's people let God lead them in every aspect of their life? Even the tricky bits, right? The hard to apply stuff. And if they do, if God's people will let him lead in every area of their life, I think two things happen, right? One, that we'll experience as individuals his blessings and we'll grow up into maturity. And the second part is, I think, is what the church is designed to do, that it will impact the culture. And the culture will get a picture of eternity being lived out here on earth. Now, the natural transition that Paul makes from chapter 6 in talking about sex and sexuality uh, is uh, from God's design and perspective, I think is to lead us now into thinking about his design for human relationships in chapter 7. And I think the two of the most basic questions that happens when we start talking about human beings that I think every human being has is one, am I important? Am I, do I have value? Is, and the second one I think is, is is anybody going to love me? Does anybody love me? Does anybody love me? Am I lovable? Do I have value? Do I matter? Am I important? And I think a crucial place that these two questions get played out 
and whether they're validated or not, they're validated or invalidated, I think, in the context, in the grand stage of marriage. Will anybody ever love me enough to marry me? Will anybody ever love me enough? Am I marriage material? And will I be valued in that relationship? Or will I just be looked at as just another sexual ends to a mean? Like, no, like nobody wants to be just a piece of meat in their relationship. No dude, no gal. There needs to be something. Everybody wants something deeper than that. And so these questions get played out in the grand stage of marriage. Am I married? Now, I think um, people have always desired to some degree, they've dreamed about the day that they were going to get married. Some folks, right? My, I remember my, my sister, man, when I was growing up, she had like scrapbooks of what her dress was going to look like, what the colors were going to be, what the cake was going to be like. And this is like some poor dude who was going to come a long way down the road. Like he'd have no say in anything, right? Because she'd been dreaming about the day that she was going to get married her entire life. And some people have that dream. And some, and some people, after they hit the stage uh, of, of adolescence, man, all they can dream about is a day that they're going to get married because they're wondering what the sex is going to be like. Like, is it going to be off the chain like everybody has always told me about. And so everybody's dreaming about this one way or the other to some degree. But then you have others who have said, you know what? I, I don't care. I don't ever want to get married. I don't think marriage is in the cards for me. And it's, my parents had a terrible marriage and I don't want to replicate that. Um, I, I saw it falling apart and so I don't want any part of that. Or the other personal reasons, just say, man, I, I, just, I just don't want to do that. It gives me angst to even think about it. And, and for some, I think what happens in the context of marriage is that self-worth and value tends to hang in the balance on whether we or not we're able to get married. If I get married, then that answers the question. Someone does love me. Somebody does think that I matter. And if I don't get married, well, that answers the question too. Then, then I'm not lovable. Nobody's going to marry me. I don't have value. And I think sometimes this gets played out in our, our marriages that tend to, tend to crumble and fall apart over time. The man... I thought somebody loved me. I thought somebody cared about me. But when I look at this thing now, I, I think it was all just uh, a sham. And, and the lie that we tend to buy from the culture is that marriage and singleness can give me my definition of value. That I, I can allow marriage to tell me who I am or I can allow being single to tell me who I am instead of remembering that the one who created us is the one that allows us to, 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 to understand what our value is. He gets to tell us who we are. Perfectly loved, complete in him, lacking in nothing. We're given value simply because we're his and we belong to him. So in that line of thought, uh, marriage then finds itself in this as a good gift given by a good God. But singleness also finds itself in that same realm. That singleness is a good gift given by a good God. And so if you're married in here this morning, here's what I want you to do, okay? I want you to look at your spouse and say, baby, look at this. This is a gift, right? Go ahead. Go ahead. Don't, don't be a, a bit, Sean, come on. Don't, don't, don't let that go. Come on. <laughs> baby, this, this is a gift to you. But also if you're single in the room, I don't want you to feel devalued because I want you to say the same thing to yourself. This is a gift. This is a gift. It's given as a blessing to me and it's given to be a blessing to others, but it's also, uh, it's, it's to be a blessing to impact the culture as, a, as, as that I'm a, a, a part of. And so if you're married, that's a good thing. If you're not married yet and you're single, that's still a good thing. These are gifts from the Lord, okay? So this week, what we're gonna do 
is we are going to focus in and single in on the gift of marriage. Next week, we're going to single in on the gift or single in. We're going to zero in on the gift of being single, okay? Because these are both gifts from, from the Lord. So if you're single in here, hang on. If you're uh, married in here, also hang on because it's about to get a little rocky here in just a minute. So, so let me set this up. The way that Paul has set this letter up is really in two different sections, okay? Uh, remember, uh, Chloe has come and she has talked um, with Paul or she has sent a letter or Chloe's people have come and they've ha- had a letter um, that's been sent to them and they're saying, listen, there are some major issues that are going on over here in the church in Corinth that I think you need to talk about. There's some serious issues. Deal with it. And so Paul's like, okay, I'm going to deal with this. And so for six chapters, he's confronting these issues that Chloe brings up to him or that Chloe's people bring up to him. Things that are going on in the church. And he's saying, listen, take, take all this. Now live like people who have been changed. Don't live like people that you used to be. Live like people who have been changed. Just because what you see in the culture is common doesn't mean that what you're seeing in the culture is right. So as people who have been changed, start living like people who have been changed, living in a brand new kingdom. And then you come into chapter 7, there's this change up. He's no longer addressing questions that Chloe's people have told him. He's gotten a letter from the church now. And the church has got some very specific questions that they have, that they, wanna, that they want answers to. And he says, like, we live in this different world. You're calling us to live differently, but the culture around me is hedonistic. The culture around me is animalistic. There is no morality that's set in stone. So how do I live? Paul, tell us, what are we supposed to do here? It's rocky. So what I want you to do is I want, to think, I want you to think about these next six, or these next chapters, following chapter six, seven and on, <clears throat> as kind of Paul sitting up on a debate stage. You got him on one side of the stage and you've got um, representatives of the culture who are sitting on the other side of the stage and they're asking some really tough questions. These aren't t-ball questions. These are fastballs coming across the plate. They're coming in with some heat, right? And they may have easy answers to say, but these aren't easy answers to actually put in to practice, okay? When somebody hears some of these answers that Paul is gonna give, sometimes applying this is when they slam the brakes and say, I don't know. Is is this really what you mean? Is this really the design? Is this really how you want me to carry this out? So just because it's easy to say doesn't mean that it's easy to live out. And so question one settles into this ground of should somebody get married? And if they get married, what's a kingdom marriage supposed to, to look like? There, there were a few different philosophies that went around the city of Corinth when, when it came to, to marriage. There were some people, there, there was a group of Jews who said that uh, everybody should get married. And, and if you don't get married, well, obviously there's, there's something wrong with you. I don't know if you've got some friends in your life who have, who have like, I mean, they see that you're single, like, why aren't you, why aren't you married yet? When are you going to get married? When's that, when's that going to happen? And then you're like, are you serious? Like, get off, get off of this thing. And sometimes you're just like, you know what, I want to punch you in the throat. If you, you've asked me that question one more time, like it's, it's going down, right? It, it's over. But there was a group of Jews in Corinth that said, if you're not married, there's an issue with you. And so that was happening there. And there was another group in the city of Corinth um, that said, you know what, let's go on the opposite side of things. You should never get married, right? You should say celibate. You should keep yourself away from any sexual behaviors. You should keep away from yourself away from any relationship whatsoever. And if you do that, then you find yourself in a position of holiness that is where you're supposed to be. So it's a completely opposite view. And then you got people like what we've been talking about over the past couple of weeks. And they said, it just doesn't really matter. 
You just go out, you do whatever it is that you, you want to do. You go live your life. You be you because it doesn't really matter. It's, it's all about your life is all physical anyway. There's no spiritual aspect connected to it. So you just go out and do it. You be you. And this is the relational DNA of the city and Corinth. Everybody's still doing whatever they want. Everybody's still doing what's right in their own eyes. And so the church is like, Paul, so like, tell us, help us. What do we do? What do you say about marriage? Should somebody get married? And if they get married, what would the kingdom marriage look like? Is there a blueprint for this sort of thing? And, and Paul's like, yeah, I'm glad you asked. Chapter 7, verse 1. <clears throat> now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife doesn't have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Isn't this a great text? Do not deprive one another except perhaps for agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. But, and, and so, theoretically here, Paul is single, right? He's not married. And some people debated, why isn't he married? It, it, what, did his wife die? Is, has he become a widower? Um, what, what's going on here? But uh, if for all intents and purposes, Paul is single in this text. Uh, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. So there are definitely things I think that we've got to talk about that we have to address in this passage here that we've got to respond to. Um, and I think you've got to know where Paul's coming from. He's got a deeply theological view of marriage that's been set from, from the time that he was a kid. Because we remember, like Paul is a recovering Pharisee. He grew up, he understood the Old Testament, he studied the Old Testament. It's in his background, just like you and I, we try to lock in a couple verses here and there to, to remember. Like Paul had the whole Old Testament memorized, guys. He could pull it out of his back hip. And so when he starts talking about marriage, there's this whole backlog of instruction that he's coming with. He's got Genesis 1 in the back of his mind. He's got Genesis 2 in the back of his mind. Coming to faith in Christ, he, he understands what, what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 5. He understands Matthew 19. He has all of this wrapped up in his, uh, theological, his theological view of marriage, okay? And so when he comes to this issue, he's not coming with a bare slate. He's coming with, with the Lord's teaching. So in Genesis 1, he's got it in his mind, hey, in the beginning, God. God put this whole thing together. It's his design. He designed how everything worked from the way that creation works to the way that, that humanity is supposed to interact with one another all the way down to the way that marriages work. And so after he creates most things, he looks and says, okay, we, we're going to create man. And so Genesis 1, 26 and 27, he says, we're going to create man in our own image. And so uh, as he says that, he says, according to our likeness, so God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. So right there in the garden, you've got God creating men and women in his image. And there's a lot that we could say about what it means to be made in the image of God, right? This is so complex, but there's one thing I think that we must say right now is that every person who's created in the image of God carries the weight and the value of his image, carries the weight and the significance, and they carry value inside of them simply because he placed it inside of them. Not because of anything that they've done, not because of anything that they're going to do, not because of anything that they won't do. They have value simply because God gave them value. And this value was given to them before anything else goes down in the garden. 
right? It was intrinsic to them because God gave, like, it was before Eve made mistakes, before Adam made mistakes, it was before they joined together in sex, it was before marriage took place. They had value in them before anything else was there simply because God made them. Value comes from God. Your value can never come from anything else when you understand that your value comes from Him. Let me say that again. Your value can never be found in anything else when you're finding your value in Him. So many of us will chase our value and our identity in so many things, wondering, like even in marriage, or our manhood or our womanhood or our singlehood or, or like all, all this sort of thing, being a mom, being a dad. Like we, we tend to try to find value in so many different things. But when we're trying to chase value in something else, we're forgetting that we already have that value from the one who created us. And so you see that this value is given to two people. It's not given to just Adam. It's not just given to Eve. It's given to both of men and women alike. And this view has been distorted throughout history. Okay? There's been a chauvinism amongst men that has been destructive. Men, so I want to say to you is that we are not superior to women. That should go without saying, shouldn't it? I mean, like, we're not something some of you do is like, no, shh, don't say that. Don't, don't, don't say that because you're going to mess things up for dudes. No, listen, there's been a chauvinism that has, that has gone on for so long, century after century, we've tried to subjugate women and say, you know what? We are the boss of you. We tell you what to do. You get to speak when we say you get to speak. And that's not how this works. There is value here in both men and women. So we're, men aren't superior to women. But likewise, listen to me, ladies, women aren't superior to men either. Over the past few decades here, there's been this move to try to destroy manhood, to try to say, men, we're going to put you back into your place. Right now, even in our culture right now, there's this idea of toxic masculinity that just tries to strip, that say, you know what, if you're a man, it's, bad, it's a bad thing that you're a man, so we're going to put you back into your place. We need to put you in the appropriate role. You've ruled for so long, and now we're going to put ourselves over you. And, and, and see, what we need to, women, like, women aren't superior to men. Men, you're not superior to women. There is an equal value that was given in the garden. Both men and women were created in the image of God. Equal in value and significance, which means that they don't have to find their value anywhere else, okay? So right now, as you sit here, there is value in you. You are loved simply because you were created in the image of God, because you were made in the image of a good God, and your value comes from Him. That means you don't have to find your value in your marriage, it means that you don't have to find your value in your singleness. It means that you don't have to try to find your value in, man, in, in manhood, womanhood, adulthood, and, and childishness. You don't have to find your value in sexual promiscuity. You just don't because it's already given to you. We'd save ourselves a lot of trouble if we'd stop chasing our identity in things that we were never intended to find our identity in. If we just grab a hold of this idea that we're everything that God has already created us to be. And so now we get to live out of the overflow of that into our life rather than try to find it in the, every aspect of our life. He's created us with it. And so what happens is God creates them, gives them value, and God told this man and this woman, according to his design, to go out and to be fruitful and multiply. We talked about that last week. And Paul's got Genesis 2 in the back of his mind here too. God sees every living creature as a, that every living creature has a mate, but his boy Adam over here doesn't have a mate, right? You got gazelles over here who have mates. You got platypuses over here who have mates, but Adam doesn't yet have one. He doesn't yet have a companion. So I need to make somebody over here uh, for him. He's not lacking in anything. He's perfectly complete. And God says, okay, 
Let's create somebody for him. Somebody to do life with. Somebody to be a helper for him. And that word helper, guys, it's been distorted throughout history, right? We get it confused and and it's been historically abused by men to correlate with this idea that women were created to be a servant for me to do exactly what I tell them to do. To be be this, uh, when I say something, you do it. And usually this falls in the realm of, of sex. If I tell you to do this, you're going to do this. If I ask you to do this, you're going to, you don't really have a say in what happens here. And so we've distorted what helper means here in Genesis 2, 18. But I think the word helper means that Eve would come alongside of Adam as a gift. Eve was a gift to Adam, not a servant, but a gift to him to help with the mandate that God gave to govern over the world that he had created. See, Adam and Eve were there to be a team, a couple, a duo, together, working for the Lord, okay? They were there to encourage one another. They were there to be a complement for one another, where there was strength to come alongside of those strengths and the bolster there, where there was human weakness to come alongside of that and to be a help in there. Not to battle against one another, stomping their ground, saying, this is my right. No, this is my right. Not to feud with one another, but to be a team together. And God brought Eve to Adam, and Adam's like, good Lord, look what you've made. Good Lord. Here's, Here's what he says. At last, this one is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And right here in Genesis 2, you have the first marriage that takes place, right? You got the joining of two souls. You got the joining of two people. And we talked last week about this whole idea of becoming one flesh, that it was way more than just physical. Of course, physical was involved, but becoming one flesh, there was emotional, relational and there was a spiritual connection there that was never intended. Like the physical was never intended to be just by itself. All of this was supposed to be wrapped up together in this one flesh uh, connection. And so as Paul is speaking to the church in Corinth, this philosophy, this theology of marriage is all sitting there. It's Genesis 1. It's Genesis 2. It's Ephesians 5 that is that going to become one of the greatest passages that you probably had read at your wedding if you're married, right? That's going to be in the back of his mind too. Like all of this is formulating his theology of, of marriage and there's practical implications of it and how it gets lived out in, in a culture that is kind of anti-marriage, or that is just really defrauded what marriage was intended uh, to be. And he's going to say, this is how you're going to live this out. And so he's asked this question, should a person get married? And if a person gets married, how do you live this thing out? He says, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Not what you intend him to say, right? But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. What Paul is saying is, it's okay not to get married. If you don't want to get married, it's okay not to get married. It's not a sin. It's not a curse if you're not yet married. It's okay. It's actually a good thing, he says, not to get married if you choose. Remember, he's going to say that I wish that you would be as I am, as single. And we're going to talk a lot about that next week. But he's also saying, I am fully aware of the culture that you're living in. I'm fully aware that this thing is falling apart. It's really tough to remain sexually pure because you're living in this overly sexualized culture with this overarching theme of the society has found its value in, not in the image of God, 
not value in what God has made them to be, but finding their value in their sex and sexuality in the physical realm and the pursuits that they're after. Everywhere you go, he's saying it's right there in front of you. You can't get away from it. It's right there at your fingertips. It's always in your face. And so knowing this, he's saying, let me remind you of God's design for marriage. If you choose to get married, and he falls back on the design of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, right? Each man should only have sex with his own wife, and each woman should only have sex with her husband. This was remarkably countercultural then. It's remarkably countercultural now. This narrow statement or narrow view when it comes to marriage, like it, it can cause a fire in our culture so fast if you say, this is my view of marriage. If you say, man, it's so singular like this, man, there's a fury that wells up with some people. And what we said last week is that it's okay to have your opinion. It's okay to, to have your thought life of what you think marriage should be. But at the end of the day, if our opinion comes into contradiction to God's word, it's not God's word that changes. It's our opinion that comes under the tutelage and the maturing of the process of growing into who he's called us to be, right? We don't change God's word to fit my opinion. We change our opinion to fit God's word. And so no matter how society tends to view this thing, we don't bend to the changing stand of the culture. It's always changing, right? We lean into the design and the desire of God on this. And that design and desire, it's never changing. It's never moving, no matter what the culture will say. And so this was a direct confrontation of the sexual climate of that day. Direct. And so everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes with no moral authority, no anchor to their lifestyles. And so Paul says, this is God's design. One man, one woman, not multiple lovers, not multiple sexual partners, not sex outside of the realm of marriage. Sex reserved for a married couple to enjoy in the context of marriage. And can you believe, like this is easy to say. This is easy for Paul to give. It's not always easy to apply because we have our opinions. We have our appetites. We have our desires. And so Paul is giving them instruction. It's going to be up to them to actually apply something that's really uh, difficult here. Now, once this foundation of marriage gets set, he goes on then to show them how this one flesh union is going to play out in real life. Remember, we've talked about how God designed marriage to work uh, as a team, two equally valuable people, husband, wife, both valuable, right? And, and, and so they're going to come together as a team, both seeing each other as a gift, not stomping around and demanding their conjugal rights. Apparently, there's an issue going on in the church where this was happening, where, where you, you've got um, spouses that aren't seeing each other as a gift, where you've got spouses that aren't functioning as a team, and they're stomping around, and they're using their bodies and their sexuality as, as rotting rams against one another to get, to get what they want. You got men who are running around saying, women, you don't, you, you don't get to have control over your own body. I've got control over you. I get to tell you what to do. Man, you don't have control over me. You're not the boss of me. You don't get to tell me what to do. If you try to tell me what to do and you try to make me have sex with you, that's not joy. That's rape. You can't do that. And so you've got this back and forth that's happening here in the church. And they were holding out on one another to manipulate each other and, and to get what they wanted. That's jacked up. Do you believe that's jacked up? That's not okay. Unless you think that that is just happening in Corinth, that kind of garbage is still happening today. It's not just Corinth. It's happening today. The marriage of the culture then was bad, but we're not all so far removed. There are some great marriages, but this kind of garbage is still happening in and outside of marriage. 
this dominance of one another, fighting back and forth, stomping our grounds for our rights. I've, I've sat across the table from couples, from, from uh, married couples, who they haven't had sex for years, for years, because they're trying to control the, the whole relationship. I'll have sex with you when dot, dot, dot. I'll have sex with you when you start. I'll have sex with you when you stop. And they're using their relationship. They're using their sexuality as a ramming rod against one another to get what they want. They're manipulating each other. And Paul's like, guys, this is nonsense. Don't live like this. If you need to put sex on hold for a minute, that's fine. It might be a good thing to help draw you closer to the Lord. But don't do it for very long because when you do, Satan gets in there and he wreaks havoc on your marriage, tempting you in ways that are unimaginable as an individual and as a couple. This is not good for you. So he says, don't stomp the ground holding out your rights. Be a gift to, to one another. Work together as a team. And so Paul's reminding the church here, God created both of you, male and female in his image, meaning that male and female, again, share in value and equality. It says you're a team. Men, you don't have control of your wives. Wives, you don't get to control or try to manipulate your husband. You are each of equal value, a gift to one another to be enjoyed, a gift to one another to serve one another together, where you both benefit, but also so that the culture is impacted in a positive way. What I'm going to do right now is I'm going to ask you guys, I mean, you guys are looking at me like, oh, oh, oh. I, I, what I want to do is I, I, want, is I want to pray, okay? Because I know that this is hard. For, for, for some of you, you, you can look at each other and, and you can say, man, you're a gift. And some of you can look at each other and say, you don't feel like a gift to me. You feel like a curse um, to me. And, and so here, here, here's what I want you to do. If you're willing, if you, if you have um, uh, a spouse in here, I want you to look at them, okay? Go, go ahead and do that. If you have a spouse in here, I, I want you to look at them. And like, kind of like we did in the beginning, like I'm serious about this, guys. Look at them and, and say, I'm a gift to you. Go ahead. I'm a gift to you. And here's the next thing that I want you to say, okay? Treat me like a gift. Treat me like a gift. And the reality is, for some of you, that is a beautiful moment of connection. But I know that's not the reality for every one of us. That's not the reality of everybody in the church. That we don't often treat our spouse as a gift. We fight for our right. We fight against one another. We stamp the ground on one another. And so if that's your scenario, what I want to do is I want to pray. Would you pray with me? Father, it's a beautiful thing that you've put together. And marriage is a wonderful, wonderful thing. But at the same time, we know that it takes work. We know that it's not always easy. And we know that there are some, some difficulties that we encounter. And so what we want to ask for you right now, God, is where there is angst and hurt, where couples aren't feeling as a gift to one another, we're not being treated as a gift from one another, we're going to pray that you would provide healing there, where you would provide hope there, and that husbands would step up and be the men that you've created them to be, that women would step up and be the women that you've created them to be, that they would see one another as part of a team to do the work that you've called them to do, not fighting against each other. And so, Lord, only you can bring that healing. Only you can provide that hope. And you've given us that hope through your son, Jesus. You've shown us that there's a better way. And so would you lead us into that place, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So the question on the table...
is should a person get married? If they do, what should a kingdom marriage look like, right? If a person wants to stay single, Paul is saying that's no problem. It's actually a good thing. But if a person wants to get married, then that couple sees their marriage as a gift from God to equally valuable human beings coming together to serve one another, not stomping around demanding the rights, okay? That's... Paul says, yes, it's good. It's a good thing to get married, but it's also, it's okay not to get married. So verses eight and nine are going to focus in on the singleness aspect. So we're going to hold those over to next week. Okay. And so what I want to do is I want to move to the next question that kind of poses up here. And I'm going to start talking really fast because I want to get through some of this stuff um, before it's time to be done. Uh, the The question is, okay, what about if I'm married? Is it okay to get a divorce? What about when you get married and, and it's not everything that you expected it to be, when things are falling apart? How do you handle this sort of thing? And there are some significant tensions, right, when we start talking about a question like this because there's differences of opinion in the church, there's differences of opinions in the world. There's like, this is a very tight subject, not, not because we may not agree with it, because we live in it. And there are, there's tensions when, when you get divorced, there's tensions when you're in a hard marriage. There, there's a lot that gets wrapped up into this thing. And so because there's these tensions, the reality is that as much as it's my desire that every married couple would flourish in, in, in their marriage, that's just not the reality sometimes, right? There are some really, really good marriages, but there are also some really bad marriages. We live in a world that's been just like hit hard with sin. Sin has touched everything. It's touched every single one of us. And even in our best days, when everything is going right, we still make mistakes. We can still choose to be selfish. We can still hurt our spouse. We can, after a while, those can begin to stack on top of one another, right? And, and not only even on our best days, there are times where we're in situations where we're ha- like we're 10 years down into our marriage or five years into our marriage, two years into our marriage, and we're like, man, I think I got married for the wrong reasons. Or, or I, I think my, my, my marriage has changed or the guy that I married or the girl that I married. Like they're not who I thought that I married. Like they have changed over the years. And for lack of better terms, there are people who just feel like their marriage is absolutely miserable. That's just terrible. And if, and if I could pull the plug on this thing right now and there'd be no social ramifications, there would be no red lights going off to say, hey, look what happened to me. I wouldn't have to wear a scarlet letter. I'd be done with this thing right now. And that breaks my heart, right? Because that's not God's design for us. It, it's, it's just not. It's not his design for marriage. And so this next section is, is I, I, probably there's some tensions that come along with it. And I want you to hear what Paul says in verse 10. To be married... To, or to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. And, and so this is Paul saying, like this, like, this is something that Jesus has said. He's not making this up. This has is, this is come from the words of the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Now, there's addition by subtraction here. It's not, this is not just a word to the wives. It's a word to the husbands too. So when, when he doesn't give the, the, the deal there that uh, the husband should not divorce his wife. It's implied there, just as it was implied for the wife. If he does, he should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to his wife, okay? So this is the same for husbands and for wives. And what Paul is saying here, even though this is hard to hear, what he is saying is don't just flippantly walk away from your marriage. Make hard choices to stay, even when it doesn't feel good. Make hard choices to stay. Even if things aren't perfect like you hope that they would be, don't just walk away from this thing because your marriage is way more important than you think it is. It's way more important for you and your growth, 
but it's also way more important for the impact that God's people have in the community as well. Like, well, I don't want my marriage to be like this thing that is just trying to help everybody else when I'm falling apart. Listen, this is more important than, than, than we tend to give it. See, in every marriage, there's the ideal and there's the reality, right? There's the ideal, what I thought it was going to be, and then there's the reality that begins to set in. And the two of those, they don't always and often match up with one another. Sometimes, like, we feel like we married the ideal, right? And then two days later, the reality sets in. We feel like we married the ideal, and then Two years later, five years later, the reality sets in because you come home and there's shoes everywhere. Well, he didn't do that when you were dating. There's plates everywhere. He didn't do that when you were dating. You come in and there's cosmetics everywhere and there's hair supplies everywhere. And this is like they're saying things and they're doing things. Like these weren't things that were going on when you guys first connected. And so the ideal begins to get impacted by the reality And when those two begin to collide, sparks begin to fly. And there's issues that begin to pop up. He starts saying things. She starts saying things. And that's where the design of God comes in to see that our value doesn't come from our spouse. Our value doesn't come from everything being perfect. Our value comes from him. He tells us who we are. And so if I'm constantly looking for my spouse to try to affirm what my value is, and I feel devalued from, front to, from time to time. Men in a marriage, women in a marriage, you ever felt devalued? You ever felt like, like it wasn't going the way that you wanted? Yeah. Yeah. And that's going to happen. From, there are going to be times where we don't feel valued by our spouse because a reality isn't matching our ideal. I'm going to keep going back to the question when those two don't match up then if I don't feel valued by my husband if I don't feel valued by my wife then I'm going to continue to wonder does anybody ever really love me or was it just a sham did anybody ever think that I mattered did I ever add any value to any I'm just going to keep going back to this same place and the overwhelming and resounding answer that we get from scripture is yes you are loved yes you do matter yes you do have value but you may not always feel it from your spouse for all kinds of different reasons. And so when the ideal and the reality, when those two don't match up, Paul is saying, listen, don't just cut bait and run. What you can do is you can create a pattern of graciousness. You can create a pattern of forgiveness where you offer forgiveness and you receive forgiveness, where you offer grace and you receive grace. Yeah, but what about, yeah, what about? Didn't Jesus give some some words? Didn't he say that people could get divorced? Didn't he say there's okay to walk out? So like, I want that deal. I'm in a situation where I want what Jesus said. I, 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 want, I, I want to get divorced. I don't see any light at the end of the tunnel. Like this thing is going down fast. I want to hear what Jesus had to say on this. And Paul's like, okay, listen, this is part of my theology. Paul knows what Jesus said in Matthew 5. He knows what he said in Matthew 19. Jesus goes back in each one of those scenarios and he reaffirms that people should stay together. He echoes the words from Genesis chapter 2, that the two become one flesh. And when he joins them together, he even adds on to that no one should come in and separate in that moment. Nobody can rip this thing apart. So God's idea is that he joins it together and it's intended to stay together. The intent was for marriage to be for life. This would be a picture of his commitment to his people. God doesn't run away from his people when it gets rocky. And so the idea is that his people don't run away from each other when it gets rocky. This doesn't mean that if you're in an abusive situation that you stay. This doesn't mean that if you fear fear for your life and you fear for your kid's life that you stay. 
whether it be physical abuse or emotional abuse or mental abuse, you don't stay in a scenario like that, okay? So when Paul's talking, he's got all this in the back of his theology. He's not throwing it all out there. That's in there, but he's not throwing it all out right now. If you're in an abusive situation, get out, get to a safe place, okay? But in the scenario that Paul is addressing here, or when he's got Matthew 5, Matthew 19 in his mind, the Pharisees, what they were doing is they were trying to press hard on Jesus about wanting a way out. And Jesus says, listen, that whoever divorces his wife except for the grounds of sexual morality and marries another commits adultery. Yikes. And Paul knows this, right? It's part of his theological framework. But the adultery thing, that's not the issue that he's dealing with here. He's dealing with just simply choosing to walk away for any variance of reasons. And Paul says, if a person wants to walk away because things are a little bit less than ideal, listen, this is, this is easier to say than it is to apply. If a person walks away because of things are less than ideal, then they're not to get remarried unless they want to be reconciled to their spouse. Harder to say or easier to say than it is to apply. But these are the words that come from Paul here, okay? The idea here is that you don't give up when our reality doesn't match our ideal. We work hard to reconcile differences. We work to become the team that God has designed in marriage, to be the duo, to be the team, to work together for the purposes that he's put us on this earth for, to impact our own growth, but also to impact the culture around us. And somebody like, man, I don't want my marriage to be like this test case of... Maybe it could work out or maybe it won't. I don't want my marriage to be this thing that, well, you know, if the community looks at my marriage, they can see a picture. Like, I'm living the reality of hurt right now. Like, I get that. But what Paul is encouraging us is don't just jet. Work at the, like the ideal and the reality are going to clash with one another. There are going to be hard things. But he's saying work it out. Reconcile with one another. And if you can be reconciled to a spouse that you've been divorced from, he says, reconcile. If it's safe, reconcile. And I've been in scenarios where I've seen people who have been divorced. Man, these things were rocky. And they've done the hard work of reconciliation that he didn't get married or she didn't get married, uh, remarried, or they did. And there was a divorce there. And then the two originals, they got back together. And it was so beautiful. When I was in uh, the army, I was in a singles group there, a uh, big singles ministry, and the guy who was leading it, he was, he was married, beautiful family, beautiful wife, like they, they were fantastic together. But something happened. The thing fell apart. It crumbled at the seams. He wasn't nice, she wasn't nice, things fell apart, kids were in the middle of it. And he went off and did his thing, she went off and did her thing. Years went by, years. Thankfully, or luckily for them, they didn't marry anybody else. They had some other relationships that were involved. But after a while, they began to wonder, can God put this thing back together? Can he do something that nobody could think that he could actually do? And so he began to woo her again. He began to to pursue her. Instead of continuing to fall apart, they actually began to fall back towards together, back together. And so he was... uh, pursuing her and she was allowing him to pursue um, uh, her and and at the end of the day what ended up happening is these two remarried one another they got married and guys i'm going to tell you what it's almost sickening to look at their pictures like they 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 are um just like just lovey-dovey all it's like they're kids again going through the whole dating process right they are back together they're remarried and this thing feels like it was better now 
than it was before they ever got started. That's what reconciliation with one another can do. And that's what Paul is pointing out here. Don't just cut bait and run. Work hard. Now, there are, there are some scenarios, there are some outliers. And if there are some outliers for you, like, let's, let's have a conversation. But for Paul, he's saying, work hard at this relationship. Don't just run. But you don't understand. My marriage is crappy. I'm not happy with a, with a crappy marriage. And what happens is we can buy the lie that comes out of this, that if I'm not currently happy where I am, then I'm not where God wants me to be. That we should just throw this thing away. Listen, marriage is intended to be a great refiner. <laughs> marriage is intended to, to perfect us more into the image of God. And no, God doesn't want you to have a crappy marriage. What he wants is for two sinful human beings to come together and to see one another as a gift from God and to work together to the team that he created in the be. He doesn't want you to have a crappy marriage. He wants to move you into what he gave you and designed for you. Gary Thomas, uh, he wrote a book called Sacred Marriage. And in that book, he poses this question. What if marriage wasn't intended to make you happy? What if, oh, I think we have the picture up here. Um, what if marriage wasn't intended to make you happy? Rather, marriage was intended to make you holy. Because the idea is that you're going to go through ups and downs in your marriage. There's going to be moments of joy. There's going to be moments of pain. There are going to be moments where your ideal and your reality clash with one another. But in those moments, growing together. Not throwing it out, but growing together. And we grow our marriage grows and the world gets to see a picture of a marriage when people are fighting towards each other in a healthy way. Guys, I've got much more to say. I know I'm way over time. Read chapter or verse 12 through, through the end of this thing. Um, I'll probably hit on it next week when we come back together. Next week, we're going to talk about the gift of singleness. And um, it's going to be fun. It's going to be a joy. Um, but I know that there are, this is painful for some in so many different areas, more than just being long, painful, okay? But just but just hearing some of this. And so what I want to do is I want to pray for you, okay? Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, only you can heal our hearts. Only you can give us the marriage that you design with a person who's yielded to you. And Father, I, I know that this is a, a question. Will your people let you lead in every area of the life, even when it wasn't perfect and even when things have fallen apart? I think a place of dependence and obedience here is key, even when it's hard. But Father, I know that we don't live in a perfect world and things don't just get fixed overnight. And so the, the reconciliation work that you want to do in us, would you, would you move us in that direction? Would you allow our men not to be chauvinistic towards their wives? Would you allow our women not to be angry towards their husbands for being men. Would you allow our couples to move together towards growth and healing? That's only you can do. Father, this is not common in our context, and you know it. It's not common in our culture, but for people to move towards one another and to give grace and forgiveness towards each other. And that's just a, that's a God thing. And so will you allow us to humble ourselves to let you do work? And where there's been hurt, you bring healing. Where there's still angst, would you provide moments of joy, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you guys. Thanks for listening.